we're going to get into the Word of God this morning. I'm excited today. Uh, some of you wondering, who are you? I thought you were Pastor Jonathan. Nope. <laughs> Pastor Jonathan will be back soon. We want to give, uh, let's, let's give God some praise for Pastor Jonathan and Mary for just the wonderful and excellent leadership that they provide this church. I am so thankful to their leadership. I, I joke with Pastor Jonathan a lot, and I say, you know, I want to be like you when I grow up, you know. And I kind of mean that. You know, he is absolutely the one to follow in the footsteps behind. Thank you so much. Um, my name is Pastor Kareem Smith. I am one of the pastors on staff at Grace Church. I pastor the senior adult ministries, and in particular, the forever young senior adult. Any forever youngers in the house this morning? Amen. Well, I'm pretty excited because this Saturday, uh, we have our first meeting of this year, Forever Young. Uh, right upstairs in the venue, we're going to have a potluck-style get-together and fellowship. And then at 6 o'clock, we're going to invite Wayne Dawson from Fox 8 News. He's going to show up and bless us uh, with a wonderful story about how he came to the Lord. And then he's going to share with us how his life as a believer in Jesus Christ and a pastor intersects with his life as a newscaster. And so uh, I'm really fired up and excited about that. If you're in uh, your 50s and up, we want to invite you to come 5 p.m. upstairs in the venue this coming Saturday. If you're not 50 but you got a few gray hairs, we'll let you in. How's that? <laughs> well, with no further ado, I'm going to hurry up and get into this word. I'm super excited about Matthew chapter 16, and uh, anytime we talk about Jesus, it's a reason to get happy. Amen. Matthew chapter 16 and I'm going to begin the reading here at verse 13 and going to end the reading at verse 18. As the text simply says, Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This morning, I'm going to speak to you from the subject of the believer's victorious confession. The believer's victorious confession. It's a big confession, y'all. Denzel Washington happened to be out with a group of friends one day, and he's enjoying the night on the town uh, when a homeless man approached him and asked him for some money. And Denzel's entourage just tried to ignore the homeless man but Denzel was moved to compassion. And so Denzel reached into his coat pocket and he slipped the homeless man a $100 bill. Well, the homeless man was so happy that he got $100 that he ran up to the first passerby he saw. He says, you'll never believe what just happened. They said, what? He said, Will Smith just gave me $100. <laughs> Sometimes it pays to know where your blessings are coming from and who it is that blesses you. As we turn our attention back to the text, Jesus had been leading his disciples on a two-and-a-half-year journey of discovering exactly who he was. And along the way, the disciples had developed a few mixed thoughts about his identity and about who he was. 
This was namely because the disciples were seeing what appeared to be blatant contradictions in his life. I mean, how could Jesus on one hand be a prophet but have no honor in his own hometown? How could Jesus be a healer of diseases, a provider of folks' needs, but lack a place to lay his own head? How could Jesus be the Son of God who walked on waters and calmed stormy seas but failed to keep his own disciples' attention? These were apparent contradictions, and these supposed contradictions led to a sense of confusion amongst the crowds, amongst the Pharisees, and the religious leaders at the time. But after two and a half years of following Jesus up close, the disciples finally got it. Uh, they had, in essence, matriculated into the university of Jesus, and they grew in their level of learning. And now it's as if Jesus is setting them up for a final exam. And so Jesus leads them off into this district known as Caesarea Philippi. It's the perfect setting for a pop quiz. Because Caesarea Philippi was situated 25 miles north of the town of Galilee, it was a Gentile region that was rife with religious diversity and pluralism. Uh, there was a God for every deity you could imagine. I mean, there were shrines and temples that were dedicated to dead gods and dead deities like Baal or the Greek god Pan, who was supposedly the god of nature. I mean, you name it, and it was worshipped in this town and in this setting. And that's not too different from where we live today. If you take a simple drive around Cleveland, you'll notice remnants of religious diversity everywhere. We have everything from our grandiose Catholic cathedrals, and they'll be sitting right next to mom-and-pop storefront-type ministries. We have mosques and Jewish synagogues and temples and the likes, and though they might be all divergent in their beliefs and practices, they all have one thing in common. They promote themselves as places of worship. Well, this was a lot like the town of Caesarea Philippi in this region. Uh, there was a buffet of religious options to choose. And it was against this backdrop, if you will, that Jesus gives his disciples this pop quiz. Who do people say the Son of Man is? Well, obviously, the disciples were thinking, Jesus, the jury's still out on this one. I mean, because you have your, your, your superstitious folks who seem to think that you're John the Baptist reincarnated. And then you have maybe your prophecy experts and scholars who seem to think that maybe you're an Old Testament figure. Maybe you're Elijah or Jeremiah or, or one of the prophets. You see, when the question is asked of the world, who is Jesus? Always be prepared to get a thousand and one answers and explanations. In fact, if you take an opinion poll today, and you ask the neighbors on your street, who is Jesus? You're going to get a variety of opinions. Suppose you ask the Jehovah's Witness, say, who is Jesus to you? The Jehovah's Witnesses will say that Jesus is Michael the archangel, and he should not be worshipped. He's a created being. But the book of Hebrews says different. Because the book of Hebrews says in chapter 1, verse 6, that when God, speaking of his firstborn Jesus, it says, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Now, unless I'm mistaken, we only worship Jehovah God. We don't worship no angel. Amen. Somebody. <laughs> well, maybe I could turn my attention to my Muslim friends and ask my Muslim friends, say, who do you say Jesus Christ is? 
And our Muslim friends might tell us that Jesus is a prophet. He's merely a prophet. And they get it halfway right because Jesus certainly does occupy the office of prophet, but Jesus is much more than a prophet. The Bible says he is king of kings and he is Lord of lords. And so Jesus is not just merely a prophet, he's someone greater. Well, maybe I could turn my attention and ask my moralist friends up the block. You know, these are the do-gooders. These are folks who actually believe in the historicity of Jesus. But they look at Jesus as one who is just simply a mere good example or a good model to follow. But if Jesus is just a mere example to follow, then all he does is mock us at the end of the day. Because we're too weak to pull off his example. You see, the world's definition of Jesus is always going to fall short. It's always going to be bound and inadequate because the world derives its meaning from man. And that's why Jesus turns his attention away from the crowd and he focuses on the disciples and he says, never mind them, who do y'all say the Son of Man is? And right there, ladies and gentlemen, lies the most important question ever asked. Because how we view Jesus not only impacts our eternal destiny, but it impacts how we live for him today. Let me say that again. They didn't hear it over here. (laughs) How we view Jesus not only impacts our eternal destiny, but it reflects how we live for him right now. You see, Jesus has in mind a mission. Jesus alludes to that mission in Luke chapter 4. And he explains in Luke chapter 4 the reason for his being, the reason for his presence, the reason for him coming to earth. He says here that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, and get this, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That year of the Lord's favor that Jesus came to proclaim is being realized right now in the context of the church. The theologians like to call this age we're living in right now the age, the dispensational age of grace or the church age. In other words, God's plan from the beginning of time was that this year of his favor and this year of his grace would commence with the arrival of the Messiah and then extend through the establishment of the church. And we see that establishment of the church, or at least the inauguration in Acts chapter 2. And so Jesus had just spent two and a half years of preparing his disciples to play a key role in the establishment of that church. Now, I know when we talk about church today, we have a lot of mixed opinions because the church today is in a bad place, especially in the West. You know, when we think of the local church, we're thinking brick and mortar, and we're thinking steeples and pews, and we're thinking of pastors who beg their congregation for expensive watches. We're thinking of local church, we're thinking of problems, and there's a lot of problems that exist in the local church. We have our fair share of scandals. We have our fair share of abuses, and we have our fair share of problems. But you need to understand that when Matthew is bringing up the church in Matthew chapter 16, he's not talking brick and mortar. Uh, When Jesus says, I'm going to build my church, he doesn't have in mind pews and steeples. What Jesus has in mind are people. Amen. And, and, And so Jesus has in mind a global church, and the Bible describes this global church as being without spot or wrinkle. 
the Bible describes the global church as the beautifully adorned bride of Christ. And this is where we meet Jesus and his disciples. It's literally at the dawn of the inauguration of that church, the global church, the worldwide body of Jesus Christ. This is the church that Jesus came to build. And so what I want to do during the next few minutes in your hearing is I want to offer some important characteristics about that church that Jesus is building. And in particular, I want to suggest that the church Jesus builds is of irresistible impact. The church he's building right now, it is of irresistible impact, and here's why. Namely, because of the confession it possesses. The confession the church possesses. Follow me into the text in verse 16 as Peter speaking on behalf of the group. In answer to the question, who is Jesus? Peter makes this bold yet decisive confession. Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Notice, first of all, he says, you are the Christ. Christ comes from the Greek word Christos. It's not to be confused with the last name. It's a title. Some of us make the mistake in assuming that Jesus is his first name and Christ is his last name. No, Christ is a title. It means anointed one. It's a translation from the Hebrew word Messiah. So in other words, what Peter confesses so boldly and so decisively is that Jesus is the long-awaited deliverer of Israel. This confession was a bold confession. It was bold because for centuries past, the Jews had had their sights set on a great deliverer who would come and deliver them as he represented the lineage of King David. For years, the nation of Israel had suffered under domination and control by four world empires, the first being Babylon, and they suffered under their domination. And then there was the world empire Assyria, and then you had the Persian empire who ransacked Israel. And now here they were, the Israelites, under Roman occupation, domination, and rule. And so there was great anticipation a great enthusiasm for a future king, and this future king would come along and make Israel great again. So along comes Peter with this bold, unapologetic epiphany that Jesus is that Christ. He is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. This wasn't only a bold and unapologetic confession. I want you to know that this confession was final. It sealed the deal. That's what I mean by it being a decisive confession. Because in the mind of Israel, the Messiah would be the fulfiller of all the people's hopes. He would be their ultimate source of salvation. This Messiah would be the great liberator and king. He would provide a foundation for their victory and success. And Peter leaves no room for ambiguity here. Peter says, you are that Messiah. You are the one, not the Greek god Pan, he's lifeless. Not Baal, he can do nothing for me. You are the Messiah. Not some phony form of religion that can't do anything to make me more like you, Jesus. No, you are the Messiah, the Christ, the son of the living God. Uh, let me pause right there and state parenthetically for the moment that if you and I are going to be a church of great impact in this society, and if you and I are going to be a church that Jesus builds, a church of influence, then we're going to have to be crystal clear about who Jesus is. Because I don't know if you know it or not, 
but there's a lot of alternative forms of Jesus these days. And some of these alternative forms of Jesus have crept their way right into the church. We got our conservative Jesus who's cloaked in an American flag and he wears a red cap. We have our pride Jesus. He's ultra liberal and he waves a rainbow flag. We have our genie Jesus who's just simply there to give me health, wealth, and prosperity. Come on, somebody. We have our activist Jesus. He fights for social justice but fails to make disciples. We have all of these different forms of Jesus, but in an age of religious confusion and distractions along the way, what distinguishes us from the rest of the pack is a clear-cut, bold confession that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah, and as such, he is not a co-signer for my ideological cause. No, he's not an endorsement for my personal endeavors. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and as such, he deserves preeminence in all of my praise and in all of my passion and should be the final focal point in all of life's pursuits. I'm talking about Jesus this, this morning. And ladies and gentlemen, we need, as believers in Jesus Christ, to develop such a hyper-focus on Jesus these days that it would be unmistakably clear to a lost and confused world that Jesus is the answer to all our needs. Yes, he is, and we need to be somewhat dogmatic about this. We need to be somewhat dogmatic about that. I know there's a lot we don't agree on in the church, but we better agree on this one because the time is short. The time is short. I heard a report once of a Hindu who ended up giving his life to Jesus. And the local town's reporter found out about the fact that this Hindu had given his life to Christ, become a Christian. And so the reporter decided he was going to interview the ex-Hindu. But when he got to the interview, he was surprised because every word out the ex-Hindu's mouth was Jesus Christ. <laughs> and it was kind of funny. He says, well, why did you become a Christian? The ex-Hindu said, Jesus Christ. He says, well, what's the difference between Hinduism and Christianity? Ex-Hindu said, Jesus Christ. <laughs> he says, he's getting a little frustrated now. And so he says, well, what did you gain then by becoming a Christian? And you guessed it, <laughs> Jesus Christ. You see, when, we, when it comes to Christianity, Jesus Christ is the point of it all. He's the reason why we sing. He's the reason why we celebrate. He's the reason why we gather together corporately and lift holy hands to the Father. He's the reason why we go and make disciples. He's the reason why we stand for justice and we speak up for the defenseless and those who have no voice. Jesus is the difference between a dead, dormant, perfunctory routine and a faith that fuels itself into action. I'm talking about Jesus. Oh yeah, I'm happy about Jesus this morning. In fact, I trust that you're happy enough to just go ahead and shout his name with me. Go ahead and shout, Jesus. We give you freedom this morning. Oh, you can do better than that. Say, Jesus! Jesus. Praise his holy name, because we're not talking just any old Jesus. We're not talking a conformist to my personal cause. No, we're talking the biblical Jesus. We're not talking a token to a political brand, because Jesus is in a class all by himself. All you got to do is look at the Bible. And all these various descriptions, these grandiose titles that describe our Lord and our Savior, he's in a class all by himself. 
He's much more than a model. The Bible says he's master. He's much more than a messenger. The Bible says he's a Messiah. He's the mediator. He's the king. He's the light of the world. He's the Lord of glory, the Holy One, the horn of our salvation, the image of God, Emmanuel, Jehovah Jireh, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is our Savior. He's our rock. He's our Redeemer, the Prince of Peace, the Great I Am. He's the Alpha, the Omega. Ladies and gentlemen, he's God. He's God. And this is who we worship. This is our confession. And our confession is a bold confession. Our confession stands in a class of its own. It's a decisive confession. But you know what else our confession is? It's a spiritual confession. In fact, so utterly spiritual is this confession that you can't even confess it from the heart and mean it without help from the Holy Ghost. Uh, verse 17, follow me into this scene. It gets quite amazing here as Jesus responds to Peter's declaration here. The text says, Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Oh, I love this scene so much. Because it's almost as if, you got to imagine this, it's almost as if upon hearing Peter's profession of faith, Jesus runs up to Peter, slaps him a high five, and says, dude, you nailed it. But so as not to get too full of yourself just yet, Peter, because you got a habit of doing that, and not to get too big-headed, I want you to understand, Peter, that this confession that just came out your mouth didn't come from you. It came from my Father who is in heaven. And so as to drive this point home even further, notice something interesting in the text. Jesus begins to call Peter by his original birth name. Don't miss this. Because a little bit of background might help us understand. When Jesus and Peter first met, Peter was introduced to Jesus by his brother Andrew. When Peter first met Jesus... Peter's name was Simon, son of Jonah. Jesus changed his name from Simon, son of Jonah, to Peter, and Peter means rock. More on that later. But suffice to say, Jesus, evidently, he looks into Peter's future, and he sees greatness. And so he calls Simon Bar-Jonah Peter to represent the rock. And I just want to pause for a minute and say, I'm just so glad Jesus is in the name-changing game. Because there's a lot of things I used to be called. But he don't call me that no more. And see, there's a lot of, I used to be called heathen, now he calls me holy. Praise his name. I used to be called drug dealer and felon, now I'm forgiven and free. Praise his holy name. Amen, somebody. And so, now Simon Barjona is considered the rock, or Peter. But Jesus, in this text, at least in this verse, he refers back to his original birth name. Why does Jesus do this? The reason Jesus calls Peter by his original birth name is to point out a very important contrast, that this confession didn't come from flesh and blood. It came from on high. And what Jesus is doing is he's juxtaposing the humanness of Peter, the finiteness of man, with the supernatural revelation that came from Peter's mouth. And the point Jesus is making is that the church he builds is not going to be based on human principles. 
The church that Jesus builds is not a development of man-centered ideologies and thought. No. The church Jesus builds is a divine work of the Spirit grounded in divine revelation. Therefore, without the illuminating work and power of the Holy Spirit, one can't even comprehend its message. You ever wonder why the people, uh, the truth is so plainly understood and believed in by you? It's so blatantly ignored by the rest of the world. The reason for this is because the testimony of Jesus is spiritually discerned. And it takes the Holy Spirit's work to pierce through that darkness and illuminate the light of the glory of Jesus Christ. That's why 1 Corinthians 12 says that no one can even confess that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Why? Because the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. You know what this calls for? It calls for fervent prayer on our part, especially on behalf of those who have yet to trust Jesus. So some of you think that it's up to you to lead your lost loved ones to Jesus. Some of you think it's up to you to convince the world to accept Christ. Well, this verse tells me, and plenty of other verses tell me, that it's up to the Holy Spirit at the end of the day. Because the Holy Spirit takes the word of the gospel that comes from your mouth and quickens it. It quickens it in the soul of the, of the unbeliever, enough to get them to respond. You know, I was at Moody Bible Institute years ago, and it was maybe my sophomore year. I'll never forget having a conversation with a friend of mine who had shared his story of how he came to know Jesus. And what shocked me the most was to discover that he was a youth pastor in his church for four years. For four straight years, he said he never even knew the Lord, yet he was a youth pastor. (laughs) Come on. I said, well, how could you be in church for four years as a youth pastor and you never knew the Lord? He says, because I knew all the right Bible verses. I knew all the right prayers. I knew how to fake the funk. I knew how to do the dance. But I never knew Jesus for myself. <laughs> he even went on to say, I think I led somebody else to Jesus. But I never, led, I never knew Jesus for myself. He says it wasn't until he got to Moody Bible Institute, of all places, his freshman year, that he heard the gospel. And it was almost like a light bulb clicked on. And for the first time in his life, he understood what Jesus meant for him. And so I'm trying to play devil's advocate with him a little bit. I say, well, you say you was a youth pastor for four years and you didn't know Jesus. Well, how you know Jesus now? What makes you think you, you know him now? Well, you could be deceiving me. He says, well, I know I know Jesus because of what he's done for me. He says, I understand it now. He says, before, I used to know what Jesus meant for everybody else. I used to know that he died on the cross to pay the penalty of their sins, but I never applied it to myself. And now I understand what Jesus means to me. In other words, it took the Holy Spirit of God to open his eyes to the divine revelation of Jesus. And that divine revelation of Jesus was suddenly made plain and personal. I may be talking to somebody this morning who has yet to make Jesus plain and personal for yourself. All your life, you've gone to church. All your life, you've gone to Catholic Mass. But you've never understood what Jesus means for you. Today could be that day where you embrace Jesus for yourself. And I want to encourage those of you who have loved ones who've yet to trust Jesus. Don't take on that responsibility of convincing them. Trust in the power of the Holy Spirit. I want to encourage you to pray that the eyes of their heart 
may be enlightened by the Holy Spirit because it's the Holy Spirit who's working behind the scenes to take what you share about Jesus and make it plain and personal. We have a powerful confession, and this confession is a decisive one. This confession about Jesus is certainly a spiritual confession. But lastly, you know what else it is? Our confession is a triumphant confession. Because in verse 18, Jesus says, And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I'll build my church. And get this, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Translation, we win. We win. We are right there. We, we win. We win. In fact, I can go ahead and close the Bible and pronounce the benediction because right there, we win. Yeah, come hell or high water, he says, the church that Jesus builds is going to be irresistible and cannot be stopped. Now, let me stop getting too excited because I got some heavy stuff to share with you in verse 18. Okay. Jesus says, I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. You have to understand that Jesus is beginning to use a little bit of pun in this section, a bit of play on words. Because after calling Peter by his original birth name in verse 16, Jesus now reverts back to calling him Peter, which is the name that Jesus gave him. And remember, Peter means what? Rock. You guys are a good class. <laughs> Peter means rock in the Greek. And so, in essence, verse 18 really could read like some bad grammar, because verse 18 literally reads like this, I tell you, you are rock, and on this rock, I will build my church. So, it sounds like some really bad grammar. And historically speaking, this statement has been the cause of a lot of division in the church, namely between Catholics and Protestants. And the question of the age is this. Does the rock that Jesus plans to build his church on refer to Peter, per se? Or does the rock that Jesus plans to build his church on refer to something else? Now, our Catholic friends might say that Jesus is pointing out Jesus, uh, uh, Peter to be the rock, and it's upon Peter that the church will be built. And they go on to say that Peter is the first pope in a long line of succeeding popes. But most Protestant theologians will jump at that and say, well, wait a minute now, time out. That can't be true. And they'll usually point to the original Greek to make their case. And I somewhat agree with them because if you look at the original Greek, you'll notice that there's subtle differences and nuances with this word for Peter or with this word for rock. For instance, in the Greek, it says you are Peter, Petros. And on this rock, Petra, I will build my church. In the Greek, Matthew's using actually two different forms of the same word to make his statement. The word Peter or Petros means little stone. It's in the masculine form. The word Petra is feminine noun. It means massive stone. And so I might have just mixed that up. Peter means little stone. Petra means massive rock, massive boulder. And so Protestants will jump at that and say, see, Jesus is making a distinction. He's making a distinction between the two rocks. He's not saying that Peter is the rock and the church is going to be built on Peter. No, because the whole thrust of this passage is to prove that Jesus is the Messiah, not Peter is the Pope, okay? 
And so they say, we got two different extremes of thought on this, on this verse and two different opinions on this matter. But today, I want to strike a happy medium between the two. Because if you look at the plain face value reading of this passage, this particular verse, and you compare this verse with several other verses in the New Testament, for instance, Ephesians chapter 2 clearly states that the church will be built on the foundation of the apostles, plural, and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. And so if you look at these verses, it does seem to say and support in some sense that the church is going to be built on Peter and the rest of the apostles. But not the person of Peter by far. <laughs> and certainly not the character of Peter or any notion that he's a perfect human being. Because you can't even make it out of this chapter before Jesus is calling Peter a devil. <laughs> okay? And so Peter is not perfect by far. What the church is going to be built on is the divinely inspired words of Peter. <laughs> because remember, what just came out of Peter's mouth was divine. This is the rock that Jesus has in mind. You are Peter. You are rock. And on this rock, this big, bold, boulder of a confession that just came out your mouth, Peter, I'm going to build my church on that. And the church that I build, he says, will be a triumphant church. Can't nothing stop it. Not even the gates of hell will prevail against this church, is what Jesus says. Gates of hell here corresponds to the Hebrew term shiel. It means the abode of the dead. And so Jesus, he uses gates here as somewhat of a metaphor, sort of like the Old Testament psalmist would describe the chains of death. And they would describe their misery as being wrapped in the chains of death. What Jesus is saying, in essence, that the grave as we know it has released its stranglehold on us because Jesus conquered sin and death once and for all at the cross. Therefore, there was now victory in Jesus' name. And not even death can hold us back. 1 Corinthians 15, one of my favorite passages in the Bible. Because Jesus sort of, uh, Paul sort of gloats in quoting this scripture. He says, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, the power of sin, the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Somebody just give him praise for that. Give him praise for the victory that we have in Jesus. Because this ought to encourage somebody this morning. I don't know about you, but it helps me develop a greater faith in Jesus. It helps me to ignite more passion for Jesus. We ought to give him praise just simply because he's the Lord of all. If you look at the Bible, start to finish, you see that Jesus is Lord of all. He's Lord over the spirit world. He's Lord over the kingdoms of this world. He's Lord of all. He's Lord over sin and death even. Even in a world that is hostile to Jesus, Jesus remains Lord of all. Now, I know we're living in some desperate times this morning, and we're living in times where the, the, the culture around us would like to point the finger at the church and label the church as irrelevant. And for good reason, they can label the church as irrelevant. 
because the church has allowed the enemy to infiltrate the ranks, and he's distracted us from our primary focus, which is the supremacy of Jesus in all things. But I want to encourage somebody this morning, don't let that stop you. Don't get so caught up into the moment or into the culture of today because Jesus is Lord of all. And Jesus promises that he is building his church. And the church that Jesus builds is invincible. Jesus is Lord. And somewhere I read, for those of you who are discouraged this morning, that we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And somewhere I read that no weapon formed against us shall ever prosper. And somewhere I read that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present or things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Translation, we win. We win. And we win primarily by the word of our testimony and our confession. And with this confession and with this testimony, you and I become a church of irresistible influence and irresistible impact. And with dogged determination, we proclaim the name that's above every name, Jesus to a lost and dying world. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me as we prepare to give Jesus his due praise. We love you, Lord. Lord, not even death can stop us. Thank you for the victory that is ours at the cross. Thank you, O oh Jesus, for raising victoriously from the grave. Thank you for giving us life, Lord. Thank you for putting in our hearts the most powerful message the world beholds. And that is the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Thank you for your power. Thank you for your influence. Thank you, oh God, for your love. In Jesus' name we all pray and say amen. Amen. amen.